In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. May His grace and His blessing be with us now, and unto the age of all ages, Amen. I welcome all of you once again to our weekly Orthodox Bible study. This is our 22nd week studying the book of Genesis. Let's now continue and see what happens at the end of chapter 14. First, let's read from Genesis 14, 21 through 24. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So in this passage, the king of Sodom, whose possessions, as you will recall from last week, were carried away by certain invading kings, along with Abram's nephew Lot, he offered Abram a reward for recovering his possessions. However, Abram refused to accept anything from the king of Sodom, not even a thread or a sandal strap. One rationale for Abram's refusal to accept anything from the king of Sodom is his unwillingness to receive anything from the hands of the ruler of the wicked city of Sodom, which is certainly understandable considering what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah later in Genesis. Notice that although Abram refused to accept even a shoelace from the king of Sodom, he gladly accepted the priestly blessing and offering of bread and wine from Melchizedek earlier in this chapter. Not only that, but he also offered to Melchizedek a tithe, that is, a tenth of all of his possessions, as an acknowledgement of Melchizedek as priest of the Most High God. Another rationale for Abram's refusal to accept a reward from the king of Sodom is his virtue. St. John Chrysostomus saw this action as a sign of Abram's reliance on God. Speaking in the person of Abram, he preached in Homily 35, I have on my side the supplier of countless goods. I enjoy much favor from on high. I have no need of wealth from you. I don't want human resources. I am content with the regard God pays me. I know the generosity of his gifts towards me. Having yielded to lot worthless scraps, I have been granted great promises beyond telling, and now by not accepting wealth from you, I earn for myself greater wealth and win further grace from him. So since he trusted in God as his provider, Abram refused to accept anything from others. It is also another reminder to us that although Abram is immensely wealthy at this point, he is not attached to material possessions at all. We also notice that even though Abram refuses the reward from the king of Sodom, he nonetheless is careful not to offend him with a complete refusal. In verse 24, he accepts the provisions that the young men from his household have consumed, as well as whatever reward is appropriate for them, but not for himself. In doing so, he reflects the words of our Savior in the Gospel, for a worker is worthy of his food. Finally, before moving on to chapter 15, I would like to show and emphasize a continuity 
in Abram's prayer here in Genesis 14 and a similar prayer in Revelation 10. Abram refused the reward of the king of Sodom with the words, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing. So Abram raises his hand to the Lord and testifies about God that he is the possessor of heaven and earth. In Revelation 10, St. John the Beloved wrote, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it. So besides the obvious similarity to the prayer of the anaphora in the liturgy of St. Basil in the Coptic Orthodox Rite, which closely parallels these words, we notice that in both cases, there is a lifting of the hands to the Lord and some kind of testament to his authority over heaven and the earth, and in the latter reference, the sea as well. And it's really interesting to see this parallel and this continuity between the first and the last books of the Holy Scripture. Let us now continue chapter 15. Generally speaking, Genesis 15 is made up of two separate theophanies between God and Abram, the first at nighttime and the second at sundown. In the first theophany, God promises Abram a son, and in the second theophany, God promises Abram the gift of the land, which would be known as the promised land thereafter. We will see in both theophanies that God begins his speech with the words, I am, or in Hebrew, Yahweh, or Yehovah, depending on where you put the vowels, or in Greek, Ego Emi, which of course is his divine name, uh, which he revealed to Moses and the Hebrews in Exodus 20. And these theophanies also uh, bring our minds to the theophany given to Moses in Exodus 20 because they all have the same elements of fire and awe. And this confirms that it is the same Lord revealing himself to Abram as the Lord who revealed himself to Moses. Let's see how Genesis 15 unfolds. In verse 1 we read, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So after Abram refused to take anything from the king of Sodom, God appeared to him in a vision at night with this comforting message. Notice the words of the Lord God here in verse 1. He tells Abram, Do not be afraid. These are the same words of the holy archangel Gabriel when he appeared to the holy virgin Mary and to Zacharias, the father of the holy foreigner, and to others as well. They are also the same words we oftentimes hear throughout the Old Testament when God manifests himself or speaks a word to one of the holy prophets. Again, we see that beautiful continuity throughout the Holy Scripture. For St. John Chrysostomus, these two events were not mere coincidence. Instead, he believed that when God saw Abram's great faith and piety in not accepting anything from the king of Sodom, God rewarded him with this vision 
to encourage and reassure him. In his 36th homily on Genesis, St. John clarified that God appeared to Abram and encouraged him because he scorned the wealth of the king. In other words, because he scorned worldly riches, God promised to provide him with spiritual riches. Chrysostomus also noticed how God reassured Abram by name. He taught us that it is oftentimes a great encouragement to address and comfort a person by name. Chrysostomus concluded his meditation on this verse with these words, as though coming from the mouth of God. You refuse to accept reward for the troubles you suffered in exposing yourself to such risks. You scorned the king and what he offered you. I will provide you with a reward not to the degree that you would have received, but wonderfully, exceedingly great. St. Ambrose of Milan also offered a beautiful meditation on God's response here. The Lord is not slow to reward. He is eager to promise and he gives in abundance, lest any delay cause weak souls to repent of having despised visible things. He pays back, so to speak, at high interest, rewarding with great abundance the one who has not been seduced by the things of this world that were offered to him. This is a wonderful example of how God deals with us when we strive to be his children and to scorn the things of this world and generally to do what is right. He blesses us and encourages us to further virtue. Let's continue reading. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So despite God's words of encouragement, Abram responded to God and revealed what Chrysostomus called his grief of spirit and the disappointment affecting him constantly on account of his childless condition. It was as though Abram told God, Lord, what sort of thing will you give me? After all, you can see I have reached the height of old age and am to pass on without children. We observe just how sad and anxious Abram was at this point. He mentioned the fact that Eliezer of Damascus will be his heir. We won't discuss this figure now in detail, but we will note that he is one of the servants in Abram's household who becomes significant later. According to St. John Chrysostomus, these words reveal the extreme degree of the pain in Abram's soul. He was pointing out to God essentially that one of his slaves will inherit the things God promised him. Chrysostomus noted that Abram was not being harsh or complaining in a negative way here, but rather he was honestly revealing his innermost thoughts to God. He was speaking boldly to God. And perhaps we can say that his grandson Jacob learned how to wrestle with God from Abram's boldness in speaking openly to God and in bearing his soul. In return, as we shall see, he received instant healing from God when he opened his soul to God. And if we stop to meditate on this dynamic, that is, Abram bears his soul to God and instantly receives comfort and healing as a result, we will be able to see the parallel with the mystery of repentance and confession 
in the Holy Church. In both cases, a person opens the innermost depths of his soul so that he might receive the healing and peace that only God can provide. Let's continue reading. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, and I just want to pause here and note these words, the word of the Lord came to him. These words should sound familiar to us because they are the same words we heard in the previous theophany in verse 2, uh, and they are also the words that we oftentimes hear uh, addressed to the prophets in the Old Testament. And in fact, some of the ancient literature holds Abraham up as a prophet because the word of the Lord came to him. This is the first time this kind of language is used, and it's used here in the story of Abraham. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. In response to Abram's sincere and open words, as we mentioned, he received instant comfort. God assured him that he will have an heir from his own body. In verse 5, he invited Abram to go outside and count the number of the stars if possible. He assured Abram that his descendants would be as numerous as these stars. Now, who was the son from the body of Abram? As we will see a little later, Abram will conceive a male son through his slave Hagar. But this was not the son of whom the Lord spoke. Consider this explanation from St. Ambrose of Milan. In fact, Hagar too bore a son Ishmael, but he is not speaking of him. Instead, he is speaking of holy Isaac. For this reason he added, who will come out from you. In fact, the one who truly came out of Abraham is the one who was born of a legitimate marriage. But in Isaac, the legitimate son, we can see the one who is the true legitimate son, the Lord Jesus, of whom at the beginning of the gospel according to St. Matthew we read that he is the son of Abraham. He was the true heir of Abraham, bringing renown to the descendants of the progenitor. Through him Abraham looked up to heaven and understood that the splendor of his posterity would be no less luminous than the radiance of the stars of heaven. So here in this passage, St. Ambrose explained that Ishmael could not be the son promised by the Lord because although he was born of Abram's seed, he was conceived with a slave out of marriage. Isaac, on the other hand, was the legitimate son because he came from a legitimate marriage, and in this way Isaac is a type or a foreshadowing or an icon of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, who came in the flesh from the seed of Abraham. St. Ambrose said that when Abram gazed up at the countless glorious stars in heaven, he saw the glory of Christ in his descendants. Now this brings us to one of the most important verses in the entire Holy Scripture. Let's read verse 6 together. And he, meaning Abram, believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This verse introduces, for the first time in the Holy Scripture, the theme of righteousness by faith 
in God's promises. This is a theme that will be especially important in the New Testament and the writings of St. Paul. In fact, we can say that the first Christian commentary on this verse was St. Paul's exposition in Romans 4, verses 1 through 5. Now, why is the theme in this verse so important? Consider Abram at this point. He is not asked to do anything in this dialogue with God. Instead, he is summoned simply to live by trusting in God's promise. Of course, as we're going to see later on, he will be called upon to do certain things. But the important point to remember is that at this point, Abram is called righteous without having done anything. St. Paul sees Abram as an example for godly righteousness that consists in having a profound trust in God, in other words, in having faith. This is the first time this concept is presented in the Holy Scripture, which makes Genesis 15, and especially this verse, very important for Christian theology. One of the reasons Abraham is our father is because his faith stands at the gate of the history of our salvation. This verse was especially important in the New Testament church and in the works of St. Paul in particular. After Pentecost, you remember, there existed some who argued that Christians were required to follow the Jewish law, the law of Moses. In other words, they had to be circumcised and observe the things that were commanded in Genesis, Leviticus, etc. They believed that to be a Christian, one had to be a Jew first. And the larger issue here was whether Christianity complemented the Jewish faith or superseded it entirely. This was the topic of the first council of the church held by the apostles in Jerusalem. St. Paul wrote extensively that Christianity should not be bound by the Jewish law because Christ fulfilled the law. And one of the most important examples employed by St. Paul was Abram. In Romans 4, he masterfully used Abram as an example to show that even before Abram was circumcised, in other words, before he fulfilled the requirements of the law, he was declared righteous. Remember that until this point in the story, Abram has not received the command from God to be circumcised. Also, Abram has not followed the law of Moses because Moses hasn't even been born yet. So therefore, according to St. Paul, what God wants from us is faith, not mere observance of the law. This is the faith Abram exemplifies in Genesis 15.6. St. John Chrysostomus teaches us that we should emulate Abram and believe in the words of God and trust in his promises. We should not try to apply our own reasoning to God's promises, but rather offer gratitude. In Abram's case, God's promise that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars was beyond the limit of nature and human logic, but despite this, Abram believed fully in God's promise, and this is why it was counted as righteousness to him. So Abram manifests this great faith, but the fact remains that his wife, Sarai, is barren. And we spoke earlier in our study of Genesis about how children are a blessing from God. We saw this clearly in how Eve named her firstborn 
Cain or Cain, a word which implies she attained a son from God. In Abram's time, children were considered a blessing from God, but the opposite was also true. The lack of a child was akin to a punishment. This stigma lasted even throughout the New Testament. For example, in the first Sunday of Kiach, we read about the Annunciation of the birth of St. John the Baptist, and if you pay attention to the end of the Gospel reading, you will see that after St. Elizabeth conceived, she said, God has taken away my reproach among men. Because she was barren, she felt a reproach from society, and once she conceived St. John the Baptist, she rejoiced in the stigma being taken away from her. Now why were childless women called barren in the Holy Scripture? There is actually a scientific reason. Of course, in Abram's time, people did not understand the intricacies of human reproduction. They did not understand that the sperm of a man inseminated the egg of a woman. For this reason, when they tried to explain human reproduction, they used the best analogy they could think of, which is that of planting a crop. Since they lived, of course, in an agricultural society, they assumed that the birth of animals and humans was like planting a crop. A seed would be placed in the ground, so the man was considered to be the source of the seed, and the woman was considered to be the ground in which that seed grew. If a woman did not have children, she was considered to be infertile, just as one, one plants good seed in bad soil. And this is why, and, and this is a very important point, the descendants of men in the Holy Scripture are called seed. In some of the more recent translations, the word descendants is used, but most of the older translations still preserve the word seed. And it is because it was the seed of man that would produce children in what they consider the good ground of a woman. If the seed was planted and nothing grew, then it was assumed that the problem was the woman. She wasn't good ground, so to speak. And this is why childless women were called barren. Even today that word refers to something that is dry and empty. And you can see how that word could easily apply to an area or a particular parcel of land. Because of their improper understanding of human reproduction, these early generations considered the woman to be at fault whenever there was a problem having children, and as a result, this stigma developed. People believed that God was punishing the woman because she was not fertile. Now, in light of her barrenness, Sarai comes up with a plan in Genesis 16 to help her husband produce offspring. Let's read together Genesis 16, 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Sarai resolves here to give Abram her slave Hagar, who was one of the slaves that Pharaoh gave him as he left Egypt, so that he might procreate with her. And this seems like a good solution to Sarai because she essentially owns Hagar, 
and at that time, of course, a slave was considered to be property, an idea that unfortunately continued well into the modern era. As property, whatever Hagar owned belonged to Sarai, including even a child. So it was perfectly acceptable for a woman to have children through her slave. After all, as we discussed, the woman was just the fertile ground in which the man's seed was planted. The important thing was that the child came from the seed of the man, and this would make the child Abram's son. So you can think of it in a manner similar to surrogate mothers today. A surrogate mother does not make any genetic contribution to the child inside of her. Instead, she simply carries the child in her womb and gives birth to it. Women were considered in ancient times to have a similar role. This is why when we read the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ, it reads, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, etc. The word used here, begat, which in Greek is genao, is an active word that not only means to procreate, but more accurately, to actively generate. It's almost as though the man has more of a role in bringing forth children than the woman. So this is Sarai's plan. And rather than chastising her, St. John Chrysostomus actually praises her for what she does. He sees her act as one of self-sacrifice, since he believed that any wife would be jealous to share her husband with another woman, especially a younger woman. Not only that, but remember that Hagar is her slave. To go through with this plan, she would have to concede her rank and position in her own household to her slave. Nonetheless, she puts her own feelings aside for the sake of her husband so that he might have a child. Chrysostomus also praises Abram here for his great love for his wife. Now I know it's difficult for us to understand how someone would conceive a child by another woman out of love for his wife, but as we read Genesis, we must remember that we cannot judge someone who lived thousands of years ago by our modern standards. Chrysostomus noted how Abram did not complain or blame his wife for her childlessness. He stayed by her side, even though, as we saw, his great desire was to have a child. When Sarai saw her husband's great love for her and not blaming her for the childlessness, she came up with this plan out of her love for her husband so that he might have an heir. We should also note that here in Genesis 16, we are reading about a plan that Sarai crafted after they spend 10 years living in Canaan. Remember that God promised the land Canaan to Abram and his descendants when he first arrived there. Nonetheless, they spent 10 years dwelling in the land without having any children. Chrysostomus says that God's power and Abram's faith are manifested in this fact. God did not open Sarai's womb immediately after they came to Canaan, but instead God waited 10 whole years. Throughout this period, Abram does not complain, nor does he put away his wife Sarai. Rather, with great faith, he awaits the fulfillment of God's promises.
Let's continue reading verses 2 through 4. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. So like a good husband, Abram heeds the voice of his wife. This plan was not his idea. He did not do it out of lust or a desire for the young Egyptian slave. Instead, he simply wanted to have an heir. So he conceived a child with Hagar. The result, however, is that Hagar begins to despise her mistress, Sarai, because after all, she is the one carrying Abram's child, not Sarai. She treats Sarai in a condescending way because she was able to conceive a child while Sarai was not able for many years. And this, of course, hurts Sarai greatly. She was willing to go along with this plan out of her love for her husband, but now she is suffering under the abuse of her own slave. Let's continue reading verses 5 and 6. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed your maid is in your hand, do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So Sarai essentially lashes out as a tortured soul and recounts all that she sacrificed for the sake of her husband. And very wisely, Abram answers nonchalantly, She is your slave. Treat her as you please. Chrysostomus sees Abram's response as a good lesson for married couples to always maintain the peace between them. Abram could have easily responded to Sarai with the facts of the matter. He could have said, This plan was not mine. I did not conceive with Hagar out of lust. I didn't ask her to give up her rank, etc. He could have thrown all of that back at Sarai, but he didn't. He recognized that she is hurt and accepts her words patiently. He then answered her in a manner that would preserve the peace between them. According to St. John Chrysostomus, Sarai then punished Hagar for her insolence. This in turn caused Hagar to flee. It's not surprising to learn that Hagar flees to the south because she is, after all, an Egyptian, so she flees southward towards the place where she came from. She covered a great distance to a place called Shur, which is just outside the eastern border of Egypt. It was most likely the last Arabian town before getting into Egypt itself. At this point, what happens to Hagar? Well, that's a topic for our next study, God willing. And glory be to God forever. Amen.